We've been on a tour around the gates of Nehemiah chapter 3, and I think I only saw about seven hands go up when Pastor Matthew asked if you've missed the Nehemiah series. For those of you who did not raise your hand, you have my fondest curses this morning, but um, in all reality, I am so excited to be back preaching in Nehemiah. I love this book. My eyes have been opened up. I didn't know any of this stuff about these gates before I began studying this book, and I've read this book of Nehemiah for a long time. So it's been really good, but I've got to do a refresher course for you because there's no way in four weeks that you can remember where we ended at the end of um, July. So it's been a long time in a pastoral ministry. That is ancient history. So let me open up the pre-trip pamphlet that I introduced to you many, many weeks ago. Nehemiah is taking us on tour He is our tour guide. He's introducing us to many of the 41 work crews that are working on the wall. He's introducing us to the gates. He's going to mention 10 of them. There are two more. I will briefly remind you of one of them, and then I will go a little bit deeper in the 12th one at the end of this sermon. But there's 12 gates, but in chapter 3, there's 10 that he mentions. And we got to remember why... Gates and walls are important. If you see behind me, Isaiah chapter 26, we learn that walls keep the wrong people out. They create security. They keep your enemies at bay. And friends, we all have enemies. And I'm not really talking about those who don't like you that you work with or go to school. We have more malicious enemies than they. These enemies want to destroy our faith. And they're captured in the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems. And we're going to go deep into them as we go through this, this book. But they're Satan. They're this world system that opposes God. And it's our own onboard hatred of God in our own flesh. And they want to eradicate your faith. They want to weaken your faith. I got an email two nights ago from somebody who is in college And already in a class where the professor is trying to demean and be condescending toward the Word of God. Trying to loosen your grip on the Word of God. That's everywhere around us. That's not unique to that college experience. It's in your workplaces. It's in every one of your schools. So we want to... And, and we want to lift up the Word of God, and we want to see its value, and we want to see that there are walls that keep the enemy out. And then, listen, there's gates. You know what gates do, right? They allow the right people in. Gates let the right people in. Walls keep the wrong people out. Walls bring security. Gates create community. So as we're walking around this wall, this tour in chapter 3, What we're seeing and what we've got to do if we're going to be the people of God that grow is stop at every gate and say, is that gate in my life in repair or in disrepair? Let me remind you of what we've seen. We started with the sheep gate. That's where Nehemiah began. He begins with the sheep gate. He ends with the sheep gate because the sheep gate is the gate through which they brought the sheep on their way to the sacrifice in the temple for the sins of the people. The sheep gate is a symbol for the cross of Christ where the Lamb of God died. It's the gate of salvation. If you don't begin at the sheep gate, if you don't come through the sheep gate, you cannot have a wall around you that has the name salvation on it. You cannot be saved. 
And so Nehemiah starts and ends with this gate because Jesus is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It points to Jesus Christ. But when you're saved, friends, you're given a mission. There are no exceptions. You are all on a mission. And it's all been given. There are lots of different missions. There's one mission. It's to go out and it's proclaiming what Jesus has done. Make disciples and baptize them. We're all part of those missionaries. And that's the fish gate where you you invite people. You become fishers of men and women. You invite people to follow Jesus Christ. You go from the sheep gate to the fish gate. That's your testimony gate. That's where you testify of what Jesus has done in your life. And you move around there because if you don't get at the fish gate and you don't get that in repair, you really are never going to grow in your confidence in your Lord and Savior. You move from the fish gate and then you get to the old gate, or in some of our Bibles, the gate of Yashanah. That's the gate where you establish your life here on the Word of God. You don't establish it on anything else. It's only the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God that is the foundation for the Christian life. Of course, Satan would want to demean the Word of God. If he could get you to establish your life on human wisdom, then it will sink in the storms like it's built on sand. You go from the sheep gate to the fish gate, you begin to live your life on the Word of God, and you begin to go downhill. From the old gate to the valley gate, it was all downhill. And those are the trials, those are the difficulties. I talked to a friend this morning, one Trial after another, it seems like they're unabated in his life. This is the gate that squeezes your life. It is difficulty. It is pressure. It is heat that refines the metal of your heart and allows the impurities to come up. The simplest way I can tell you is this. Picture your heart like a tube of toothpaste. And when God allows those trials at the valley gate, he is squeezing that tube. And what is coming out of that tube is what is in your heart all along. And sometimes what's coming out is not very pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes it is. But when it's not pleasing to the Lord, you get right to the next gate. That's the dung gate. That's the gate through which Jerusalem threw the trash. It's where they took the bodies of the vagrants and the immigrants and the foreigners and the beggars when they died and they put them down into the valley below and there was a perpetual fire burning. The dung gate is where you confess what has come clear at the valley gate and you throw them onto the mercies of the blood of Christ and when you turn around you shut the doors and you put its locks and you put its bars in place so you don't carry that shame home. That's the power of the dung gate. But you've got to get from the dung gate to the fountain gate, which is next. And you can see it on that map around me. You get to that fountain gate. That's where the Spirit of God begins to fill you in in a greater way than He has ever done before. He's filling you with power so that your testimony is greater. Your testimony is more effective. Your faith is greater in Jesus Christ. He's filling you at the fountain gate so you'd be filled with the Spirit of God and become fruitful with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of this flooding into your life because you've thrown out the impurities that came clear at the valley gate. You threw them through the dung gate. He's filling you at the fountain gate. And listen, he's going to fill you at the water gate with the word of God. The water gate is the word of God. 
The Word of God is a symbol, of, or water rather, is often the symbol of the Scriptures, the Word of God that flows through our lives. And when the Word of God goes down deep into the soil of your heart, it begins to bring new thoughts, bring new desires, bring greater conviction, bring greater service to God. That's what's happening at the water gate that the Spirit of God has done from the fountain gate. And you move from the water gate now ready, now prepared for what you're going to get at the horse gate because horses were always the symbol of war. When a king went on a mission of peace, it was on a donkey. When he went on a, a horse, it was because he was going to war. We are always at the horse gate. It is spiritual conflict. You're in a spiritual battle every moment you, of your day. You go to bed and you think it's time for an escape from the battle. Listen, you can have dreams of which there is spiritual battle going on. Sometimes you wake up emotionally and spiritually exhausted. You've got to get back to the fountain gate. Let them fill you with the water gate because you're in the midst of a battle at the horse gate. You go to work, you're in battle. You go to school, you're in battle. There are no labor days that Satan takes. It's constant battle. And you got to be ready for it. Because that battle is going to make your longing, and I talked to another couple this morning, we're speaking, won't it be so nice when Jesus Christ comes back? You know why? Because in their life, it's one physical struggle after another. There is a longing that the valley gate does to increase you for the east gate. And the east gate is when Jesus Christ will come back and return for his people. He comes from the east. It's where the sun rises. He is the morning sun. And as it peaks up over the horizon of the time scale of this world, he will flood this world with his light and he will take his people home to be with him. And that's where we ended at the end of July. But there's one more gate in chapter 3. And Nehemiah is walking us toward it. We've just left the east gate. You're in verse 30. I hope you have your Bibles open. If you've got your tablets and Androids and, and phones and your iPads, listen, the, the wireless password, CEFC, all lowercase, get on them. Let's open the Bibles. We're walking from the east gate. We're walking to the mustard gate. Or you're going to hear the inspection gate or the Mifkad gate came, had different names. But Nehemiah, as he has been doing, is going to stop and say, listen, I want to introduce you to some people. There's some people working on this wall that I've got to bring honor to. And so you get to verse 30, and I want to show you the first one. It's Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph. Now that might not be awe-inspiring to read that for you. It is for me. I'm the sixth son. I'm the youngest. I'm not the sixth son. I'm the sixth child. I'm, I've got three older brothers and two, oldest, two older sisters. I'm the youngest of six. So when I read that, it immediately sticks out in my mind. And there's things that we can extract from this that can honestly target those of you who are younger. Let me just pick a demographic out of my mind, out of my hat. For everybody here that is 30 years and younger, it could be much higher than that. But all of you who are 30 and younger, I want your eyes on me for the next few minutes. Because I think Hanan is you. I think he's speaking, Nehemiah is, to the youngest people in our congregation. Who have a lot to offer. But you need to know that. You need to know how God views you. 
And how God views you is through the life of Hanan, and we're going to see that in a minute. Hanan is likely a younger man. And if that's true, which I think it is, then we, we already immediately learn that God treasures and honors the faithful young. How do you know that? Now listen, all of you 30 years and younger, look at me. The fact that we're reading about Hanan tells you he's in the eternal record of the Word of God. How would you like your name in the eternal, infallible Word of God? For people of every generation to know how you served your God. You know, God's a record keeper. God loves to write down and honor his servants. And he's doing that with Hanan through the pen of Nehemiah. And we learn that Hanan is the sixth son of Zalaph. He is the junior builder in the work crew. Listen, how do you know that? Because look in verse 30. Hananiah's name precedes Hanan's. That's a, that's a key for you. That's a code for you to know that the work crew leader is Hananiah. His helper, his subordinate is Hanan. And guess what? Hanan's okay with that. He's not bristling. See, there's something that you younger people have that we lose when we get older. You don't have the ego. You don't have the pride that goes when you get older and you think you deserve to be in charge. You think that you deserve to be the one in control and calling the shots. The younger people are okay. They just want to serve. You want your energy going to the kingdom of God. This is Hanan. Matthew Henry wrote, they are most honorable that are most useful. Did you catch that? They are most honorable that are most useful. God loves to honor his faithful servants. And notice that there is no mention. Listen, 30 years older and younger and 30 years old and younger. Look at me. There's no mention of his five older brothers. You'll never read about another son of Zalaph in chapter 3. The youngest outdid the oldest because he was faithful to do what God had asked him to do. And you might not be married. You may not have figured out your purpose in life. You might not even have finished school, but God has a great purpose for your life. Listen, now. You're not the next generation of the church. You're part of today's generation. And if you're not on the wall and if you're not serving God, there are gaps. Even at your age, even at your youth, your energy is going to be far greater than those of the rest of us. So serve God well in your youth and he is going to honor you well. But let's walk down the, the wall a little bit more. Let me introduce you to the next person then Nehemiah pauses that. Look at his name, Meshulam. You know, we met Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, in verse 4. Do you remember that? He was building a portion of the wall between the fish and the old gates. And it wasn't until afterwards that we see him in verse 30, and look what he's doing. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. Now you've got to get something from this. You can't let your mind skip this. You've got to get it in gear. When you're reading on your own through the week and you're meditating on the Word of God, pause. Don't read large portions of Scripture. You're going to miss too much. 
It's almost, you, you can disagree with that. You know how Paul sometimes says, I've been speaking the inspired word of God, but this is my own opinion. Well, I never can claim what Paul did, but I can tell you this is my own opinion. Reading large blocks of scripture, honestly, I think is nearly worthless. Chew it. Take it in small doses. Get it down in your soul, and let's see what God plants and grows. Because if you read verse 30, and it's just one of a whole chapter you're reading in chapter 3, you're going to miss the, the point. He didn't repair in verse 30 his own chamber until he worked on the wall of Jerusalem in verse 4. You've got to get the order. He worked on the wall, he, let me put it in today's language. He worked in the church, he worked in the kingdom of God, he served God with all of his life, and then whatever time he had left over, he put into his own personal life. So that's what you have to get out of verse 30 with Meshulam. You know, a chamber was a word in the Hebrew language that describes a storage area, a small room, possibly an office area. And you see, the way that they built a lot of these chambers and some of their homes, they built them right into the wall. It would be part of the wall. The wall was thick. And you would actually build your home into the wall. This chamber is part of the wall. And it's where Meshulam either lived or worked, but in either case... It wasn't safe until it was repaired. Can you imagine having a gap in the wall? And you've got enemies all around you. The wall creates security. If there's a gap in the wall, it creates insecurity. It creates anxiety. And all the while where he lived and where he worked, it is gapped. Yet he says, that's not important yet. Let me put my time into the kingdom of God. And when I am finished working on the wall for the people of God, then I will give my time and attention to my own life and my own safety and my own security. Now listen, get out of Meshulam's shoes for a moment and let's together, me as well, let's get into our own shoes and let's ask ourselves these questions. Do you give the very best to God or do you give him what's left? Remember, God is a record keeper. He's got your name written in books. They're going to be opened. We'll see it in a moment. All of what you've done will be shown and brought to light. So it is honestly kind of fair that I preempt Judgment Day with the same question that's going to be on that day. Are you giving God your very best? Are you serving in the kingdom? Or honestly, are you giving Him what's left? Meshulam was selfless, dedicated, tireless. He put others above himself. You'll see later with Ezra, he signed the covenant that they made, the people of God made. He loved God and he served the people of God well. And God honors him specifically on our tour through chapter 3. But we pass Meshulam because now we've made it to the 10th gate. And the 10th gate in my version is called the muster gate. 
It's the mustard gate in the ESV, the English Standard. If you have the NIV, it's the inspection gate. If you've got the KJV, it's the Mithcad gate. The reason it's called the Mithcad gate is because the Hebrew word for muster is Mithcad. It's translated in a number of ways, and you've got to get this. If you get this, you'll understand immediately or begin to understand what this gate was for. It was for a review. It was a registry. It was a way that they numbered and took the census of the people of Jerusalem. Listen, when a stranger or a foreigner came to Jerusalem, they were directed over to the mustard gate where they would register who they were and why they were there. And these were kept into books. And it was the gate where the king would bring his troops out and they would line up in rank and in formation and he would pass through his troops. You've got to get the imagery. He would pass through his troops and he would inspect them. This is still a word today. It's a military word. Muster means to muster the troops. Put them in ranks because your commander's coming out to inspect. And here is where we begin to see the great meaning of this gate in the gospel. Every one of these gates complete the picture of the gospel. Listen, the entire gospel is captured in these gates. And remember, we've moved from the east gate. The king has come back for his people. And we move to the mustard gate and he's bringing all the people out. And he's now going to assemble them and muster them. He's going to review them. They're all going to be before him and he's going to inspect their lives. And here's where we begin to read about it, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him, this is Mustergate language, will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So pause, look at me. Here, don't read any more yet. Don't cheat. Bart, I see you. I know your eyes are up there. Because I've got to explain this to you. You've got to get the imagery. All the nations are gathered before Jesus. He's on his throne. He's on his judgment seat. And he takes them and he puts them into two groups. And on his right, he puts the sheep. Those are the people that have been through the sheep gate. Those are the people who have been to the cross. Those are the ones that are covered in the blood of Christ. They are righteous not because of what they've done. They are righteous because of what the Lamb of God did on the cross. And then he puts everybody else in the, in the group on his left. That's the group called the goats. Now look at what happens. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he's going to say to those on the left, those of the goats, those who would not go through the sheep gate, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what the muster gate points to, or the inspection gate. And these two gates, the fact that they are next to each other, the east gate going right to the mustard gate, you see it in this, this glimpse of 2 Timothy 4. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. That's mustard gate. Not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. That's the east gate. 
You're going to see it again in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. That's the east gate, the morning rising sun. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. That is the muster gate. And you see this all through the Scriptures. You know, when I was a little boy, this terrified me. God has since set me free from the terror of this moment. But I got to tell you, I remember one Sunday. I remember as if it was yesterday. I had taken a nap. I was a really little boy. I was probably nine years old. And I woke up and I'm the youngest of six. So that means there's eight of us in our family. I woke up and I could not find anybody. You never really ever saw our house not bustling with energy and movement. I woke up from this nap. I couldn't find anybody. And in my mind, terror formed because I felt God, Jesus must have come back and he did not take me. And I'm going to be with the goats. Do you know how frightening that is? How terrifying that is? Some of you, I've talked to some people who have had those fears. And God has abated those fears. They are something new. I hope to do that for you this morning. This is exciting but I want you to know that no person will be exempt from the day of judgment. You will not be able to be truant. You're going to be there. Now listen, whether you're in the group of the sheep or whether you're in the group of the goats, I don't know. You can know. And if you're in the group of the goats on that day, listen, I've got to be honest with you, or I'm not preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. If you're in that day, on that day in the group of the goats, I have no comfort for you. There is nothing of, by way of comfort that could come your way. But I can tell you now while you're alive that if you've not yet been to the sheep gate, you yet still can. And why wouldn't you? So whether you are, we are at home, Paul says, or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear. That word all in the Greek, you know what my professor told me? All means all, and that's all that all means. It is universally comprehensive in the Greek. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And I knew this verse as a little boy, and it made me frightened. And the Old Testament speaks of this day, this mustard gate day as well. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. And my fright and my terror increased. And you go to Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And my terror is climbing. And you get to Revelation 20, and it says that even earth and sky will flee from his presence on that day. There will be no tree that Adam found to hide behind from the holy gaze of God. Romans 14, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Friends, there are no exceptions. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
every person on the planet who has ever lived and ever will, will one day stand before God and he will separate them from his right to his left, the sheep to the goats. Now listen, if you walk out of here without hearing what I'm going to tell you, I have failed. Get your ears open. You've got to hear this. On that day, and it's always capitalized with a capital D. That's how you know it's Mustergate Day. On that day, Christ will reward his sheep and punish the goats. The nations raged, Revelation 11, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged. There's Mustergate language. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. That's the sheep, but here's the goats. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Listen, that's not talking about those who drink from styrofoam cups and aren't green. It's talking about those who never went through the sheep gate. Brothers and sisters, listen, because this motivates you to get on the wall and serve your God. Writing to believers in Corinth, Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now listen, Christians, those of you who are sheep, those of you who have been through the sheep gate, here's your future on that day. Then each one will receive not his condemnation, you're not going to receive condemnation on that day. Look what it says. His commendation from God. This is what God has done in my life to turn my fear to peace. My trepidation to confidence when I stand before the Lord, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Christ has done. And for believers who are gathered on that day of judgment, it's not going to be a terrifying day. There is no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Listen, think, think logically for a moment. If God really is true that he's taken all of our sins and plunged them to the trackless, bottomless depths of the ocean and cast them from the east to the west where there is no ability to retrieve them. If God brings those back to your account on the day of judgment, then he's a liar and God is no liar. They're gone. He's expunged our sins from the record because of the blood of Christ. That's the great eraser. You will stand before him on that day with commendation and reward coming to you. Now, if anyone builds, Paul said, on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, what's the foundation? The Bible says Jesus Christ is the foundation. His work on the cross is the foundation. You build on that foundation through serving God in the kingdom with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Each, wor each one's work will become manifest. Look at the capital D. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward 
If anyone's work, he's talking to the sheep. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Listen, you stand, fellow Christian, before Jesus Christ on that day, and books will be opened, and everything you've done, everything you've spoken, the thoughts of your heart, the service to your God, it will be disclosed for all to see, and his holy gaze will burn them up, and what survives him his gaze will be your rewards for eternity. And unless you think there will be competition, know that you will have utter, full, and complete joy with whatever God gives you. But would you not want to stand on that day and hear these words, and not every Christian will. Well done, good and faithful servant. We will be at the muster gate for review. We're going to be inspected by Jesus Christ. And how we served on the wall of the kingdom of God will be brought to light. Look at your text for a moment. Don't you find it interesting that Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths who knew all about gold, Silver and precious stones was the one that repaired this wall on either side of this gate. Do you really think in the inspired word of God that that's an accident? Malchijah is a prefiguring of Christ. He is the great goldsmith and he knows what he's looking for. And he is looking for and wanting and desiring gold, silver and precious stones from our lives. For the believer, friend, salvation is not in question on that day. That was settled at the cross. You do not need to worry. You are not going to receive condemnation. Everything will pass before Christ. His inspection for us will be for reward. How we served, how we testified, how we persevered in our faith, how we finished and buffeted our bodies to bring it into conformity with the Spirit of God, how we defeated temptation in the grace of Christ through the power that lives in us at the fountain gate, how we loved the Word of God, how we took the Word of God and held it out in hope for people who have no hope, all of that will be disclosed on that day, and it will be producing silver, gold, and precious stones, and they will be given to you to follow you into eternity. And as we conclude our tour on the gates of Nehemiah, listen, I told you there's 12 gates. And I introduced the Ephraim gate weeks ago. Ephraim gate was between the old gate and the valley gate. And the word Ephraim in the Hebrew means doubly fruitful. When you establish your life on the Word of God, He begins to build fruitfulness in you. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. And you're going to be like a tree, the psalmist says, planted by streams of water, whose branches yield fruit and leaves do not prosper. And everything you do, leaves do not wither. Everything you do prospers. But there's another gate. 
And you're going to see it in chapter 12, verse 39. You're going to see both the Ephraim gate and the gate of the guard. That's the 12th. Now listen, give me your attention because I'm almost done and this is so important. In chapter 12, Nehemiah switches from going counterclockwise around the wall to dividing it into two choirs of singers. And one choir is now going clockwise. And he's starting at the valley gate and he goes to the old gate. The choir goes to the old gate and they're traveling to the temple. They go to the fish gate. They go to the sheep gate and then they go to the gate of the guard. So how do we know where the gate of the guard was? Well, if you're going clockwise now and look at the map behind me and you just you go around the corner above the mustard gate is the gate of the guard. If you're still going counterclockwise in your mind, you go from the east gate to the mustard gate and you end or you arrive at the gate of the guard. And it's important to know what this means. You see, the gate of the guard, friends, symbolizes those who failed the inspection at the mustard gate. It's the gate of prison. It's the gate where the criminals went through. It's the lawbreaker's gate. It's for those who reject the Savior and who stand before Jesus Christ on that day of mustard gate judgment on their own merit. They will fail because nobody's righteousness can meet the holy demands of God. And it's why he sent his son to die in our place. It's why Jesus Christ came to enable us to escape judgment, John 5, 24. You will not face judgment, Jesus says, because I brought you from death to life. You've passed over. That's the gate where those who rejected Christ will go. And if anyone's name, Revelation 20, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the gate of the guard is for all who say no to the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. See, I've got to take you to Nehemiah 12 because I don't want you to think, wow, pastor, you're trying to scare us. I'm showing you the gospel as Nehemiah unfolds it. And what goes after the mustard gate for those who are in the group of the goats is the very last gate they will ever see. It's the gate for their eternal demise and their eternal suffering. It's the gate of the guard. Listen, you've got to see something even better. Look at where Nehemiah ends in chapter 3. You can't end there because the gospel won't end there. Even though there's a gate of the guard, there's still hope. If you are still alive, he will end with the sheep gate. He's saying to you, listen, if you've not yet come through the sheep gate, let me end there. You can yet come. You don't need to stop at the gate of the guard while you're still alive. Until that day of judgment, you still have an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. The Lord is not slow Second Peter says to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Listen, this is sheep gate language. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is why Nehemiah ends on the sheep gate where he started. He's saying to all people, listen, get to the sheep gate. Flee to the cross. Don't rely on your own merit. It's going to fail the inspection. Don't think that you've done enough good to pass the mustard gate. You're not going to be able to make it. 
Don't think your pedigree of a righteous family will do it. Don't think your church attendance is all you needed. Don't think that you took enough sacraments when you were a kid. None of that is going to do it. You will have to stand before Jesus on your own merit or on the merit of the Son of God. And goats will be there on their own merit. Sheep will be there on the merit of Jesus, the Lamb of God. It forces us to deeply inquire of our own souls. Have I been through the sheep gate? And have I put, truly, have I put my faith in the finished work of the Lamb of God? That's the only way to make it through the muster gate. Would you close your eyes? I'm not going to make you come out of your pew. I promise you that. But I will ask you to be honest because I'm going to pray and I'm going to bring you before God and His throne of mercy. If you have felt, and you'll know it because you feel like your blood pressure is rising, you're arguing with God, you feel hot, you feel like everybody else in the sanctuary has disappeared and it's just you. If you know that you've not yet been through the sheep gate, and that the gate of the guard right now, if you were to die today, the gate of the guard is where you're going to be. If you know that, would you be honest enough, courageous enough to just raise your hand so I could pray for you? That's all I'm going to do. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that one. Be honest. Everybody, just close your eyes and let, let people be honest. Any more hands? I see it. I see it. anymore. Don't wrestle. God already knows. Today is the day of your salvation. Let's get to the sheep gate today. Any more hands? Let me pray for you. Keep your eyes closed if you would and just let me lift up without names those who raise their hands. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who, and I'm speaking to the sheep, who know that their salvation is settled because they've been through the sheep gate. Lord, confirm that day in them. It will not be a day of condemnation. It will be a day of commendation, a day of rewards. Let them toil and serve you well the rest of their lives. Lord, for my friends, I can't yet call them brothers or sisters, but for my friends who raised their hands, Lord, I would pray for them. There is no formulaic prayer. There is no right words to pray. You want an honest heart. Lord, help them to just cry out to you in their heart that they are afraid, and they should be, but they don't need to remain that way. Lord, let them ask you to forgive them and to grant them salvation. You have promised you will do it. You are no respecter of persons. You are not partial to anybody. Anybody who asks for your forgiveness will be granted it. And they will be spared from that terrifying judgment on that day 
And they will pass from death to life, life that starts now for eternity, a life free from the power and the enslaving might of sin, free to serve you for the rest of their lives. And one day to discover just how liberal and generous you are with your rewards. Lord, let them settle that today and give them hope for eternal life. And it's your name I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.